Hey guys, thanks for tuning in to the Pause Reviews Podcast. I'm your host, Frank. And while we are on our season one break, we didn't want to leave you guys with no content at all. That would just be sad and tragic. So instead, every Thursday during the break, we are going to air previously aired episodes of our show, especially those that were crazy long at the start of season one. We had several two-hour episodes. We're going to cut those down and air just the portion where we discuss the actual movie. Hopefully this will help you guys catch up on episodes you've missed in advance of our season two launch, February 4th, 2021. The first episode that we're going to re-air is our discussion on the film True Romance, directed by Tony Scott and written by Quentin Tarantino. Uh, This was a listener request. It was a super, super awesome episode to do. One of my favorites, one of my favorite discussions. So check it out, see what you think, and make sure that you join us Thursday, February 4th for the launch of Season 2 of the Pause Reviews Podcast. Thank you all so much, and enjoy the episode. This is a listener request that we watch True Romance from 1993. So, as always, first things first, spoilers, 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 spoiler alert. Um, This movie came out in 1993, guys. So, if you haven't taken the time in the last 27 years to watch this movie. Like me. Had you never seen this? I had never seen it. Oh my God, Tim. And I am super, super delighted that I have now seen it. I am so excited to have this episode now. I had no idea, dude. Yeah. I kind of had, I honestly didn't think much of it. And uh, it came up on another call this week and I mentioned it. And a friend of mine that I was chatting with, he was like, wait a minute, that's the Tarantino written one. And I was like, wait, what? And he was yeah. like, yeah, it's written by Tarantino and it's got X, Y, and Z in it. And I was like, oh, oh, okay, hold up. This totally changes the game for me on this. So uh, it totally makes sense of why this recommendation came in from who it did. Uh, my buddy Eric, I totally understand. This definitely seems like a movie that would be in his wheelhouse. And I am thrilled that uh, that I've now seen this movie. Um, it is fascinating. So I remember... <sighs> I was a teenager. I don't exactly remember when, but I, I got into a hard Tarantino kick. And I even got like into the weeds. Like so there was a movie Four Rooms where he directed and wrote one of the um it's it's so it's it's four sort of vignettes within this this hotel and he had done one of them. And so I remember having a conversation. I'm pretty sure it was it was Rico and he uh, he was like, yeah, man, but what about True Romance? I'm like, True Romance? What's True Romance? Dude, I thought I knew everything. And he's like, bro, Tarantino wrote True Romance. He just didn't direct it. And I was like, well, who directed it? And it was Tony Scott. And I'm like, Tony Scott? Because that was the flip side of my coin in the 90s and early 2000s. I mean, yeah. Days of Thunder, Top Gun, Crimson Tide. Every movie I loved was Tony Scott. So of the Scott brothers, you got Tony Scott and Ridley Scott. Ridley Scott was your thinker, he was your deep dive, and Tony Scott was just to punch you in the face with exactly what you wanted, exactly when you wanted it. And yeah. uh, so I was I was in, man. I watched this, I owned it. You know, I don't think, it, I think it was one of those that somehow I ended up not having it anymore. And it had been a long time since I had revisited this movie. 
Uh, so when I saw this come through, I was like, yes, we have to do this. We'll watch yeah. anything you guys ask us to. But uh, but this was one that I was super excited to watch. Okay, so again, spoiler alerts. And uh, where can you watch this? The great news is the director's cut is actually available right now for free on Amazon Prime. Uh, it's with ads, but uh, that's that's provided to you via IMDb TV which is super awesome. It's uncut, it's unedited, but it's just spliced with ads. So you can check that out for free right now, today, tomorrow, whenever, yesterday, doesn't matter. This one is fantastic. What else? Okay, so we talked about released in 93, directed by Tony Scott, but written by Quentin Tarantino. If I'm not mistaken, I think this is actually one of the first, if not the first screenplay he had ever written. This one came out the year after Reservoir Dogs and the year before or two years before Pulp Fiction. So this one's kind of sandwiched right in between his two, you know, the two that really got him off the charts. Um, But again, he did not direct this one and he wrote this one first, which is interesting because you see a lot of him in it. Yeah, and it's it's fascinating to me that he from what I have seen, he kind of had this and Reservoir Dogs like in his back pocket and was kind of like, well, I can't do both. And so depending on what you see, some people say like he threw both of them at Tony Scott and was like, you pick the one that you want to do and I'll do the other. And then I read some other stuff that that might not necessarily, might necessarily be accurate. But the fact that out the door, he had both of these scripts in his pocket and ready to go. And he was going to do either one. It just blows my mind. Dude, and he had Pulp Fiction right there with it. Like right. this is his, these are the three that came out. Boom, boom, boom. That yeah. he made him a household name. Like it's, yes. this is, this changed the course of filmmaking of cinema and obviously of his life. And, and the yeah. rest is history after this. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so the budget was about $12.5 million, and the worldwide gross was a little bit less, about 12.3. So, you know, in terms of release, it was it was a theater flop. Like, this movie did not do well, um, but it was critically well-received out the gate, and it's obviously had this massive cult following after theatrical release, and so well-deserved. There is no one who isn't in this movie, but it stars Christian Slater. He's your male lead, Clarence. Patricia Arquette is your female lead. She plays Alabama, and then then it's just a whole cast of characters. You got Dennis Hopper, Gary Oldman, Brad Pitt, Christopher Walken, Michael Rappaport, Saul Rubinek, James Gandolfini, Chris Penn, Tom Sizemore, Sam Jackson, Val Kilmer. I mean, the list goes on, people. You have literally seen everyone in this movie somewhere else. Yeah, fact. And that is, and we'll get into it, but that is one of the fascinating things for me in this movie. I mean, that list you just rolled rolled out and you did like, Bronson Pinchot like you got some Valky love in this movie like I just literally as the the as it was rolling every name I was like James Gandolfini like what it it is nuts it it is you have literally seen everybody in this movie and then one of Lee Donowitz's bodyguards uh, Lee Donowitz played by Saul Rubinek is Little John from from Robin Robin Hood Hood Men Men in Tights I mean it is it is uh, you have seen everyone in this movie uh, somewhere else. It, it is unreal. The second I saw him, I was like, oh, just drop him in like the tub. He can't swim. Yeah. Right, right, <laughs> so right. Good. Um, 
Okay, so quick synopsis. Uh, basically, Clarence, our lead, is sent a call girl named Alabama for his birthday. His boss sends her, wants him to have a good time. Uh, they spend a, an evening together going to the movies, eating pie at a diner, and then, of course, huh, knocking boots. So after the one night they spend together, they fall madly in love. They get married. Clarence goes to her pimp's house to get her clothes and other odds and ends, as you do. Ends up killing him and taking a suitcase Thinking it's full of her clothes, it's not. It's full of a whole mess of cocaine that the pimp, named Drexel, stole from the mob. Oh, by the way, he's played by Gary Oldman. And then uh, the two of them are now driving from Detroit to L.A. to try to sell this coke in one fell swoop so they can start their lives together. While, of course, evading the mob and the police, everyone's looking for them. On and on and on we go. That's our plot. And while it sounds ridiculous, it is. It's also deliciously entertaining. Yeah. Yep. 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 Um, (laughs) Okay. So let's just jump in. Talking points. First of all, overall opinion. If you can't tell by now, I freaking love this movie. I mean, it has ever. I loved it when I first saw it. I love it today. It is so much fun. The camp and the ridiculous outlandishness somehow makes sense and works. The way it's shot, like the grittiness of Detroit, and and it it looks exactly and feels exactly as you would expect and you want it to look and feel. I mean, there's so many reasons why. There's so many reasons why you should dislike this movie and somehow all of those reasons and so many more that you can't quite put your finger on are exactly the reasons why you love this movie. It is so hard to, I don't know, like our leads, it's impossible to hate them. As cheesy and corny and ridiculous as they are, these caricatures of people... You want so badly to despise them, but you can't. This movie, like the leads, like everything about it, is so freaking charismatic and so endearing and so engaging. It's like, why do you love this movie? I don't know. You'll just love it when you see it. And there's reasons why I think we'll get into them in a second, but hands down, I love this movie. And I think most people will, especially if you listen and love this podcast. So... There you go. That's my two cents. Let's just end it. We're done. Have a great one, guys. Done. Yeah, we wrap this up. Anyways. All right. So that's my thoughts. Tim, what about you? Um, I I think a lot of what you just said, I think, is going to color a lot of things that I feel. The way I've been approaching a lot of this is watching the movie a Saturday night. We, we usually record a Sunday night. So, so trying to watch it like 24 hours and then just kind of marinating from there. Let it sit, you know, yeah. and then and then just kind of think about it in in my own terms and then do a little bit of research on it just to have have some ammo but i find this movie absolutely fascinating for reasons outside of the storyline almost immediately it's like things just get turned up to 11 there's no gradual like introduction into this movie things are just like we're going this is happening and you've got to be okay with it and we'll get to it i I struggled with that for a little while but after digesting um and and hearing some of your thoughts i think I, i can come around to that but some of the other fascinating stuff 
is just everything about this production and everything about this movie. You were looking at Hollywood at a nexus here. You have mm-hmm. you have actors at the prime of their career, towards the end of their career, when you with with, with Hopper and, and Christopher Walken, and then you have this next wave of stars with Brad Pitt and, and James Gandolfini still three years away from The Sopranos, and. Even just the handoff between uh, Scott and Tarantino, it's just like it's like this magical passing of the baton movie where you're just seeing this changing of the guard happening within this movie. And and you probably don't notice it at the time, right, because you don't know what Brad Pitt's going to end up doing or what James Gandolfini's going to end up doing or even what Tarantino's going to do. But watching it now, you're like, holy crap, what is happening at this in this movie is outstandingly unique. I don't know that you see that, have seen something like this where it's just greatness being handed off to greatness. It's fascinating. Um, and I think just that just puts this in another echelon for appreciation because it's just it's one era of Hollywood handing off to another era of Hollywood and even to storyline, it's this blending of old Hollywood into new Hollywood to some degree. It's just, it's just as an entity, it is super fascinating and uh, so much fun. I completely agree. I think that segues well into just sort of jumping into some general thoughts and then like always we'll talk about the bad and then some of the really big highlights and then we'll kind of wrap this up. So like we said a hundred times, this movie is written by Tarantino, directed by Tony Scott, and I think this is exactly reason number one why this movie sits so high on my list. This movie stands apart so much from Tarantino's other canon because I feel like it's the perfect marriage between director and writer and each one of them in their proper place. A lot of people say this, and I do agree to a point, this movie very much feels like a Tarantino movie. It's as the writer, you very much hear his voice. You see it play out on camera. It just jumps from page to screen. His influence is so evident and so clearly needed. He's a master. There are so few people who can do dialogue the way Tarantino does and write a character the way he does and do that development of that character the way that he does. And you kind of see that here and you definitely need that here. That being said, I think as brilliant as he is, and you will never hear me say that he does not belong on anybody's list of greatest writers and directors of all time, uh, because he absolutely does. I think very highly of him. That being said, I genuinely believe he's a far more gifted writer than he is a director. And I think him directing his movies can sometimes be his downfall and the downfall of a movie. His quirkiness and jitteriness and all this stuff, while it leads to really great characters, I don't think always leads to great movies. I think his his scores, his music are overpowering and distracting from stories more often than not. I think that his... Just sort of, while I think his time jumping is brilliant and out of the box and it just changed the game in terms of screenwriting, that is a screenwriting thing, not a directing choice. And so, again, you know, his sort of ability to visually put that movie on the screen, I'm not saying he's not up there with the best because he is. I just don't think that's necessarily his strength. All that being said, I, I think that. Him handing this off to Tony Scott and Tony Scott's 
energy and just the what he brings to the table as a director in action movies and dramas, right? I mean, Crimson Tide is this perfect blend of action and drama and tension building and character development. He's the perfect director to take what Quentin Tarantino has written and show it to me on the screen. And, and so, again, I just think it's incredible. You also touched on this a little bit in terms of what this what this movie means for, for views and, and takes on Hollywood and its actors. Like, you see a lot of Tarantino in this. And then there's this incredible back and forth between him and Lee, the so Clarence and Lee, uh, the two characters in the movie, talking about you know uh you know oscar contending movies and this it's just this monologue that you can just it's just dripping with tarantino which is super ironic considering how many oscars tarantino and his movies and his actors right. have won but you know that being said um again it's just top to bottom it's just this beautiful marriage and you get tony scott bringing in han zimmer who yeah. has worked with him on literally everything that he's directed since, you know, Days of Thunder, I think. I think he didn't work on Top Gun. And so you get this more muted score. I think it plays up things a little bit better, but it's certainly not distracting like some of Tarantino's other works. Yeah, uh, it's it's really interesting that you definitely, 100%, you feel all of that underneath this in every, all the writing. Um, I did wonder a lot what, a Tarantino directed version of this looks like, mm. um, you know, you're talking about the score and everything and how driven a lot of Tarantino movies are by the pop music that are in, in his movies. I mean, Pulp Fiction's got some iconic scenes with Chuck Berry's uh, never can tell not getting the Elvis rights in this movie. Um, yeah. there, there, there's some, some stuff to be said about that, that kind of subplot to this. I wonder what this would have looked like with some of that pop culture music in it, but you're right. That's what inherently would make this more of a Tarantino film and where that is dialed back um, initially gets a little weird. The the score, when it opens this pan, the pan pipes that you hear this pan pipe medley that, Oh yes. It is so weird at first to me, and it doesn't fit this overview of you're seeing of Detroit all dirty and gritty, right? And you've got this beautiful pan flute playing music, and I was like, what is happening? This is weird. This because doesn't this is, feel right. It's the story of these diamonds in the rough, man. And totally, by yeah. the end of the movie, you're like, oh, this is the pretty music. This is when you know everything is okay. This is the moments where we're safe and we're with our, you know, our couple. And they've, you know, these are the safe, tender moments. And by the end of the movie, that music is is consoling. And it just means everything is going to be okay. And so it is interesting when you watch this with a Pulp Fiction in the back of your brain, it's like, well, where, where would Tarantino have gone with this? And it, it's not there. It, and I don't think it needed to be. And I think those moments that are dialed back um, are, are important that they're not over Tarantino'd. But it is fascinating, too, that he says this is his most autobiographical movie. That makes and, Yeah, he is Clarence. And it's fascinating, too, because I was like, well, what part of this is his most autobiographical? Because, like, <laughs> like, what are we talking about here? But he is. He is Clarence. And there are times in this movie where I was like, I can see 
Tarantino in this character. Like if, you know, especially in his cameo in Pulp Fiction, you're like, I can see him in this character. Like the jitteriness that you talk about, I can see that in Clarence. Um, And then he also talks about seeing himself in the character of Michael Rappaport, uh, of being a young actor and trying to get parts. Oh, yes. So all of that is just super interesting to see the different characters that he has put himself in um, and that he is so much a part of this movie, but what ends up making this work even better is that he's not a part of this movie. Right. So it's that juxtaposition. So, and again, it is, there are a few exceptions. I, I think Tarantino's cameo in Pulp Fiction is one of the best cameos ever. Um, I think Tarantino in Dust Till Dawn is he. I think he's great in that as much as he can be. But again, he didn't direct that. Robert Rodriguez mm-hmm. did. So Tarantino taking direction from somebody else can be really powerful. Again, with the exception of Pulp Fiction, he did that himself. Tarantino, his cameos in his other movies, I'm not a huge fan of, and, and I'm and I'm. I'm one who likes seeing the director or the writer in the movie from time to time. You know, I find that clever as as well as as long as you can do it well. So, but what was what's awesome about it is that he's not on screen yet. You watch him for the whole two hours and one minute, and it's the perfect way to have him. And you're absolutely right. You know, you see, and you see both sides of him. You see the brains and the writer and, and, and sort of what made the man. And then you also see the struggling actor and whatever, but everyone kind of finds success in their own ways. And so this is, it's incredible. It's incredibly well done. And, and it's a huge, it's a huge, huge testament to his writing ability. And, uh, and it makes it all the more powerful because you can see him in it. Hans Zimmer and his score. And you were talking yeah. about the, the pipes. Yeah. He has this amazing talent for creating these theme songs for your characters and for each person. We open up with Christian Slater and Clarence, uh, Christian Slater as Clarence, sitting in this dingy, gross bar, talking to what I would assume is another lady of the night. And... She is just gross looking and it's just like, it's so down, but he is so upbeat. He's so positive. He's so loving, right? Like, or, or rather like endearing. And, and so he's just completely out of sort in that he just, he's just a, ro- a rose in crap. You know what I mean? Yeah. And yeah. Alabama is the exact same, especially when we, we go to her pimp Drexel's house with Clarence and all the other women in there are just run down and nasty and he's gross and the house is crazy. But here she is, this chipper, upbeat, like giggling. Nothing gets her down. We know she's only been at it for about four days, but you would feel like those four days would have destroyed anybody else. Like all of their light would be gone. And she is just, you cannot snuff her out. And so that little pan flute thing is perfect when I'm looking at this grunginess, but I'm I'm supposed to be following them, and they're my little bunnies, kind of bringing me through the poo. 
I think that's an absolute great way to describe them and makes me really appreciate that that scoring even more because that's Hans part Zimmer, of baby because part of it what was really bothering me for a while is that Clarence and Alabama just go with it they just get in so deep so quick and like you said she's been on this job for four days and she has no qualms about her newly married husband of four hours going out and killing her old pimp she's like yeah sure that's even sexier now that you've done that she and you know yeah she looks upset and then she says that's the most romantic thing anyone's ever done and just starts macking him right and clarence's thought is like yeah, I'm going to go kill this guy because my wife of four hours was pimped out for him by four days. Like it's just this hyper innocence of them is so out of place that it feels so weird. You're like, did I miss something? How are we just suddenly okay with Clarence just off in this guy? Like, is there some secret past of his that we don't know about that he's just going to go off and murder? Like, that's it. Got to murder this guy. And really threw me for, uh, uh, for a while, even her coming out to him at the beginning. It's like, I have to tell you, we didn't meet by chance. I was paid to spend the night with you. And he was like, yeah, that's cool. I figured as much. Yeah. He was like, just, I had a blast. Yeah. Thanks. Just rolls with it. And that just sets up, everything else that comes after it because nothing is on off the table for the rest of this movie. You cannot predict the rest of this movie because the characters don't react any single way that you expect a normal person to act. Yep. And it is just tied all back to that music because if you watch their actions with that music playing in their heads, everything makes more sense to their actions. They're just rolling with it because they are happy-go-lucky they are in love with each other and the world makes perfect sense to them everything they're doing falls in line after that. let's not get it twisted these people and it's again it just speaks highly to the writing to the score to the direction to everything our two leads are losers they are trashy but the music and the way that they play these, the acting, my God, the acting. This is Christian Slater at his best. You will right. not find him better. He's not better later. He's not better before. This is the height of Christian Slater, with the exception maybe of Interview with the Vampire, in which he had about 10 seconds of screen time. That's the only other way you want Christian Slater in your life. And so, but in this movie, he's perfection. Don't get it twisted. They are garbage. They are losers. Yeah. They slaughter people. He murders two people at the pimp house. He, which, and we do get a little bit of exposition, right? When the dad, the former cop, they do talk to De- Dennis Hopper, plays his father, and they talk to him, and he's like, Oh, the more I talk to my buddies, this guy was awful. Like, it's a good thing you killed him. So that's supposed to make us feel a little bit better. But. Um, and Alabama kills a mobster and that kind of, so, uh, you know, you're kind of going through the motions and you're like, okay, these people, they're killing bad people, right? We can justify that in our minds. But then Alabama straight up murders a cop. 
You know, right. and say what you will, but the truth is these people are selling tons and tons of coke to a bunch of cokehead movie producers. The cops are just doing their job, and yeah, the cops come in blasting, but everything co- sort of jumps off and it makes sense, and there's mobsters there. And then she straight up murders a cop, but we don't care. We're like, yeah. we love you, Alabama, because her, the way she acts and the way, or the, you know, the way Patricia Arquette acts this role and and the way the music plays and everything else it just makes everything okay this movie yeah. fires on all cylinders and and that's exactly kind of what i was saying is there's so many reasons why you shouldn't like it or why you shouldn't like these characters but yeah. something triggers and you do and, and at the end honestly this movie ends and you're like what just that like why do i love this so much and and it's it's crazy like okay all that being said there is some bad let's talk a little bit about the bad okay i have a few notes here number one and it was difficult but here's here's one so it's dated yes right when you watch this movie it very much feels like an early 90s movie it's super campy there's not much you can do about the former but what's funny and this kind of speaks again to to sort of how everything's okay the campiness and, and all that it just makes sense, right? These two characters, you talked a bit about how they're just all in. That first scene, right? So they they go on their little date, they have sex, he wakes up, she's not there, you fully expect she's gone, whatever. She's just crawled out the fire escape, she's hanging out, and just professes her love for him. They have been together for maybe six hours, seven hours, mm-hmm. right? They watched a couple movies, they had some pie, they had some sex. Oh, and by the way, Tim, what'd you think of that belly licking? Uh, right, I uh, off the bat, I was like, "Huh, that there's your Cinemax. Uh, that's yeah. my that, there's your Skinemax right there. That was uh, that was some uh, some fancy belly licking going on." There. But what I dug about it was it wasn't even pretending to be other things. She was no. just straight up licking his belly, <laughs> right? And as a bigger guy, I'm like, "Okay, I've right, never had right. that before. Maybe I'll, yeah, I'll listen to you lick my belly." Okay, so um, anyways, so it's not. <laughs> Uh, so yeah, it's dated, it's campy, whatever. But the campy makes sense. It ends up being a plus. The dated, not much you can do about that. Here, here's something I, I didn't really dig. You see a lot of characters kind of come and go. Um, you, kind of a lot of day work, right? Lots of cameos and whatnot. And you, you get that primarily in two. One of them is a huge win. One of them is a big loss. The win is Brad Pitt. We'll talk about that in a second. Amazing. <laughs> the loss is Christopher Walken. Right, so there is a critically renowned scene. It's even got a name. It's called the Sicilian scene, and this is a huge dialogue slash monologue um, by Dennis Hopper between him and Christopher Walken. So Dennis Hopper gives this whole speech to Christopher Walken. Christopher Walken plays sort of the number two of this mob family. He's like the consigliere or like the I forget what he calls himself, but he's kind of the the right hand, right? And uh, of this mob boss. So he comes in flanked with all his little mobster cronies. And they're pressing Dennis Hopper for information about where his son Clarence has gone with their coke. And he's trying to be intimidating, trying to be threatening. Dennis Hopper's not budging. And then he gives this whole speech about where Sicilians come from. So a couple of cons for this one. The first and easy one, not, not with the scene. The scene is fantastic. The one con with this scene, however, though, is what the serious hell is up with Quentin Tarantino and the end bomb, dude? Like, <laughs> he, feet, 
and the N-word are the two things he loves on Earth more than anything else. And he wants Absolutely. to show you as many toes as he can, and he wants to drop the N-word as much as he possibly can. In Jan- like, Django did not bother me until he's on screen as like that Australian Kiwi, just in an awful accent, first of all. Like, why are you doing an accent? And second of all, just so he can drop N-bombs. Like, in Pulp right. Fiction, it kind of makes sense a little bit, but again, you're like, what is happening here, bro? And so, again, in this scene, Dennis Hopper is Quentin Tarantino dropping N-bombs. Um, that, it's, it's starting to, it just grates on me. I really don't yeah. like it. Like at I all. had, I had, yes, it was a beautiful day in the DMV area. I had all the doors and windows open throughout the day, throughout the night. And I had this actually piped through Bluetooth to my speakers leveled uh, that are on a couple different levels of the house uh-huh. and sitting in the basement, watching this, forgetting that the windows and uh, doors are open upstairs and cut to the scene. And I was like, Oh, <laughs> you should have oh! known better. <laughs> And I know my neighbors can hear this. This is fun. Uh, um, but while sim- simultaneously thinking throughout this movie, I wonder where the feet shots would have been. That's <laughs> right. Dude, <laughs> yes. If he directs this, you're looking at someone's. I mean, clearly Patricia Arquette. She's like our our only female that we get. Right. 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 So she's going to be tiptoeing around barefoot or she's going to stick her toes in his face or something's going to happen. Right. Um. Okay, so but the point I really want to make with this Sicilian scene is it's it's masterfully done, and you get yeah. Christopher Walken, and he sets himself up. He goes through the trouble of coming to this trailer park to interview Dennis oh. Hopper. They find out where the coke is, and so in the third act, the mobsters show up at the drug deal in the hotel, but Christopher yep. Walken is noticeably absent. So yeah. in the third act crescendo, you have no Christopher Walken. Why wouldn't he be there? Why is he not there? Why is he not there to oversee this coming to an end? Why isn't he shot to pieces? If he's not there and not shot to pieces, why isn't he still chasing them to Mexico? How does it suddenly end and they get away unless all the mobsters are dead? So I just yeah. don't understand. And it's clearly that he was just there for one day and they just didn't shoot yeah. both scenes. I think it I think you could have made it work a little bit cleaner um you know watch having watched the entirety of the sopranos you there are not that many instances where I feel like Tony gets his hands dirty on official business right um he the times that he gets involved in things are maybe slightly more personal than they are business related. Um, So I could see you playing that off as you're not going to send the second in command who they refer to. They do refer to him as Don, but again, he's not the head of the family. Yeah. Yeah. I can see you. I can see you playing that off that this man is not going to travel from Detroit to LA to, to do the dirty work. Right. Uh, but I think there are lines in the third act that are confusing. When Virgil, played by uh, James Gandolfini, shows up, he's yelling at Alabama the whole time, saying, "Where's my dope?" He's like, "It's, but it's not yours. Right. It's like it's." So it was almost like, did they put him as a stand-in? And I don't see Christopher Walking doing that whole scene 
with with James Gandolfini and Patricia Arquette because that scene is just brutal and he just they both are destroyed. I mean, he ends up being killed, but she beats the crap out of him and he beats the crap out of her and I don't see Christopher Walken playing that part in 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 that scene, but it does sort of highlight what you're saying that he he's set up brilliantly to be this 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 really kind of head character and then he is missing but I, again i think you could have done that better in a way that it made sense but he's definitely missing and i think the other one for me which was odd and disappointing was the other one who got full billing off the top was samuel L. jackson and i was like oh Samuel L. Jackson's in this movie? He is in this movie for 10 seconds. Maybe 10 seconds. Maybe. Yep. And you're like, oh, he's playing a cool kind of character. And dead. Gone. And it was like he didn't get an and or like an uncredited cameo. Like, I, I, this isn't, you know, this isn't coming to America, Samuel L. Jackson. Like, this yeah. is, you know, early 90s Samuel L. Jackson. And he is in this movie for 10 seconds. Yep. Nope. I absolutely agree. And I do agree with you. They should have done this better. And it's, you know, and I guess, why does he go get his hands dirty once and then he wouldn't do it again? It does set up an interesting dynamic. James Gandolfini has a, a great interaction with Patricia Arquette and, and with that whole scene and her overpowering him. If there's two people there, that plays out very differently. But maybe you have a Pulp Fiction thing. Maybe Christopher Walken comes in later to see what's going on and Christian Slater's already come in and caps him or something. I mean, I don't know what happens. Or maybe he just yeah. sends James Gandolfini, who doesn't come back, and then they figure out where they are. And then they, you know, because he doesn't come back, he has to show up again at the hotel and he gets killed. With it. But it's just, it's this glaring hole in in the story where he's got to be in the end. We either have to see him die or he wins because why would they just stop? It's like yeah. Mexico's out of our reach. That seems, it seemed really, really dumb. Yeah. Now, the other thing is that they're after the Coke. The Coke is there. The Coke gets seized. Maybe they think everybody's dead because our leads leave with the money, the producer's money, not mob money or anybody else's money. So maybe that's why. But at that point, when you've killed all these people, like even if it's not about the coke, you gotta believe the mobs come in just for blood, right? Like I, right, don't, right. I don't know. Um, yeah. So that 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 was a weak point for me when he just doesn't show up again. Uh, the next is the mentor. So Val Kilmer yeah. plays a character called the mentor, and this is troublesome for two reasons. You tapped on one, Tim. They don't have the rights to Elvis, and they don't have the rights to his music, and so. Val Kilmer obviously plays Elvis. He talks like him. He's in this gold onesie. You know, the whole deal. You don't see his face. You only see certain things. And he's called the mentor. And he's a manifestation of Clarence's subconscious that visits him in bathrooms and tells him to go kill pimps and, and do other things. This is a part of the story I don't like. I feel like... Yeah. It's never really explained. It comes in twice at random, and it just feels out of sorts. So that is yeah. a huge part I don't like. Yeah, it's... We open the movie in that dive bar. We're talking to this vaguely Marilyn Monroe-esque possible lady of the night, as you, as you mentioned. Right. And he, he Clarence is waxing poetic about the king, 
and it plays it up like Elvis is going to have more of an impact on this story. And that's where I think I'm coming from, where I'm like, well, it would have been interesting to see. I know they wanted to use one of his songs in the opening credits and things like that. So would that have meant something more? There needed to be more of it, I guess, or you just don't do it. That's exactly what I was going to say. Exactly. We've seen it done. I mean, Dexter is visited by the ghost of his father and and sort of it kind of keeps him on his path. There's a there's a great movie. A lot of people don't like it. I I liked it a lot. It's Kevin Costner. It's called Mr. Brooks, where he plays a serial killer. And it's John William Hurt. I I don't remember. The person who kind of plays his subconscious visits him throughout the movie. People are visited by these manifestations throughout the movie. And that's exactly why this is off-putting. Because either Elvis talks him through, or sorry, the mentor, talks him through every step of this process. We see him in the backseat of the car. We see him helping him make the decision. There's a moment where he's like, uh, he gets in the elevator with, um oh yeah yeah, yeah. bronson pincho bronson yeah. yeah so he uh so he gets in the elevator with him and he he pulls out this gun and he starts just berating him to be like oh, i had to be sure that it wasn't a setup why isn't there a scene of walking in like elvis saying hey don't you think he might be setting us up or something right like if we either need more of it of this this manifestation influencing every decision he's making during this process or we need to see none of it because honestly the little glimmer at the beginning and the little glimmer at the end just don't make sense and it's confusing and it sets up this question about our lead where it's is he crazy like i don't understand and so it, it ends up being another huge hole that is is difficult to deal with but at the same time, it's minor enough that you just kind of say, that sucks, that didn't work, you didn't do that well, and it doesn't ruin the movie, but it, this is one that should have ended up on the cutting room floor if you didn't shoot more. So Yeah, and Alabama is obsessed with how cool Clarence is, right? Yeah, she's like, so the cool. end, she's like, oh, you're, you're so, so cool. cool. Yeah. He's a he's a nerd, like for all intents and purposes, that worked at a comic book shop. Like, don't you think there's ball? nothing more that Quentin Tarantino wanted than right. to have some smoking hot girl tell him how cool he is? Yes, as long as she had good feet. Oh, she but, gotta have the best feet, Tim. But so you know, I I think you're you're absolutely right. A few more scenes of exposition on that would have would have helped me. Been like, see him make that transition from you know working at the comic book shop for four years to suddenly brokering this mastermind drug deal and you know rubbing elbows with hollywood elite within a 24-hour period it's like if you see more of that mentoring him him into this cool persona you're like all right i can see like you know this this delusion or this this devolvement or evolvement into involvement's a new word i guess um <laughs> it, it, this evolution into um <laughs> into the <laughs> i love it um you know into this cool character um i think would have done a lot but i think uh, yeah I, I think you're right cutting room uh floor for for those two scenes and i it, you wouldn't have lost anything 
No, absolutely. And especially with this idea, right? Like if that's his goal, I mean, what better that we see him mentoring him through, we see him a little less, the need for him is less. And then at the end, when she thinks he's so cool, then Elvis can go. You don't need him anymore. Yeah. Now now right. he has someone in real life and he doesn't need that whole thing, right? So it's this whole dynamic that should be there and isn't, and therefore it just shouldn't be there at all. Um, yeah. Okay. The last thing, well, the last two quick things is, number one, the kiss between Dennis Hopper and Patricia Arquette after they meet for the first time is awful. I hated everything about it. There's even a lot. So Christian Slater's talking to his dad, and he's like, oh, she's such a peach. She even tastes like peaches. And he's like, you're an idiot. You shouldn't be married, blah, blah, blah. Then when Christian Slater and Patricia Arquette are leaving the trailer, she goes to kiss her father-in-law goodbye. And just straight open mouth tongue licks him. And he just, and he's like, mmm. And then Christian Slater's reaction is like, hey guys, cut that out, you guys. And so she gets in the car, they drive away, and his line is, ooh, she really does taste like peaches. And sir, that is capital G R O double S, gross. <laughs> it is so gross. I almost threw up in my mouth. Awful. Absolutely awful I scene. A lot of that just plays into some of the things I said before, where everything that happens is unexpected and the opposite of what I expect to happen and what these characters to do. You know, when they show up, he, um, you know, Dennis Hopper's like, you haven't been, I haven't seen, you know, hide nor hair of you in three years. And you show up at eight o'clock in the morning and, you know, w what's the deal? And that scene ends with him being like, oh, yeah, you killed a guy. Yeah, probably for the best. I'm totally cool with it. Like, <laughs> the whole thing is just like he's mad at him for not keeping in touch, but he's totally chill that he killed this this drug dealer. No biggie. We'll move on. Right. Um, and then and then is, I'm going to oh. tongue bath your wife <laughs> oh, God. and tell you how delicious she is. Okay, the last thing I don't like is Tom Sizemore and Chris Penn cast in yeah. the role of these narc cops. They feel out of place. They feel super gross. It's kind of whatever, which I guess, I don't know, it makes sense. It's also super hilarious and laughable that they're legitimately narcotics detectives. Um, right. And, and obviously not funny on purpose. But every moment that I saw them on screen, I found that to be painful uh, i would have rather had anybody else. just fill it with no names you know yeah, like, I, I, I just i i did not enjoy them in this movie but whatever to, yeah that, that goes sort of back to a thought that we had in it where you have funny actors available to you and you realize like oh we need them to be kind of goofy and it just it just uh, i wasn't really sad when when pen got it this nope. is kind of like when neither one of them uh, yeah yeah i'm just like it's like this is for my partner and i'm like uh, no i'm kind of rooting for the mobsters here because y'all are <laughs> and terrible. apparently patricia arquette she's the one yeah, that right. kills him um <laughs> all right so the good we'll try to tear through this as, as quickly as we can but man yeah so much here to dive into there's so much good number one gary oldman he is an absolute movie stealer. His portrayal of Drexel the Pimp was awesome to watch. Yep. And I was I was genuinely sad that he eats it so early. But at least yeah. we get some really great time with him. This man is unlike any other actor. He is a freaking chameleon. He 
is unrecognized. When you see him in this movie, he is unrecognizable. And when it, when you, I mean, you see it pretty much right away. But at the same time, you're like, this is Gary Oldman. This is yeah. the greatest actor of our time. Gary Oldman playing this role. It's insane. I loved everything about it. And Alabama's quote about him just perfectly sums it up. Um, Clarence asks, is he black? And she goes, he thinks he is. He thinks he is, yes. He was just brilliant. Everything about swinging that lamp back and forth. What was the point in swinging the lamp back and forth? But it was just, you couldn't take your eyes off of it. You're like, why is, what is the the dead eye? uh, Everything, everything about his character was brilliant yep. and i loved him yep no he <laughs> is him. he's the best part arguably the best part of this movie um, i agree okay uh we already talked that this is christian slater at his absolute best his tics his quirks and everything that make him usually hard to watch work really well for him in this it's a testament to how perfectly this movie is cast because you fully much buy full tilt into his charm, his innocence, and that's what carries you through the camp and ridiculousness of this movie. We talked a little bit already about the juxtaposition between the cinematography, the music, and these characters, um, and it's perfectly done. You could say the exact same thing about Patricia Arquette as Alabama. Tony Scott got the absolute best out of his two leads, and this kind of goes back to my first point that I'm not sure that Quentin Tarantino could have gotten this performance mm. out of those two actors. I think Quentin Tarantino is incredible at getting top-level performance out of people, but I think it's very specific people. I think it's true with DiCaprio. I think it's true with Brad Pitt. I think it's true with uh, Christoph Waltz, right? Like, mm-hmm. there's certain people I think work very well with him. I'm not positive that these two actors are are those people. There's actually, there's a really interesting scene. So we talked a little bit about Patricia Arquette, James Gandolfini scene. Yeah. Uh, she talked in an interview years ago that I guess she was struggling to get that scene right. So she was, I mean, it's it's an incredible scene. She is hysterically laughing. She's absolutely terrified. She's totally exhausted. She's beat to smithereens. She wrecks him. Like, it's, a lot happens in this scene. And I guess Tony Scott walks up to her and says, do you need me to help you? And she's like, yes. And he just straight cold clocks her across the face. And she just yep. starts crying and whatever. And apparently it's what she needed to get through and, and capture this scene. I can't imagine Tarantino getting away. I mean, we actually, and we've seen Uma Thurman talks about this. Tarantino pushes people to a brink, right? Like most good directors do in the right situation. But Uma Thurman struggled to work with him. And in this, there's like the famous car crash thing that happened in Kill Bill and, and things like that. I don't see him as the director getting all of this out of these two the way that Tony Scott was able to do it. I'm not saying the right thing to do is to slap a woman in the face. I just think, again, it speaks to this perfect dynamic of everyone in their right role. Um, I just don't think this is the same movie and the same performance from those two with Tarantino at the helm. And apparently when in retrospect when tarantino commented about this particular scene uh, apparently it happens again in filming um that patricia arquette actually asks tony scott to to hit her because it was so effective like later mm-hmm. on she asks for it again and, and tarantino's mentioning this and i think this was a couple of years ago he he was kind of saying exactly what you said like tony could get away with it because of who he was as a person 
and that you knew it wasn't anything malicious and i think fully admitting that he's like i couldn't do that without a lawsuit he's like but you knew he was just such a kind person i think it was the words that tarantino used that like it wasn't coming from anywhere else other than to try and help his actress (laughs) but it's it's fascinating absolutely fascinating i mean you can you imagine now i mean it's absolutely tragic that we lost tony scott to to that just horrible horrible disease that is mental health uh but anyways but the not to 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 linger on that uh but it he's just he was so incredible but can you imagine that happening now like he would be just it would be over for him it's game over okay the next i think go ahead sorry the one the last thing i want to say about that 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 part that that scene um just that that is another underscore of that nexus that i was talking about you you see these flashes in james gandolfini of what will eventually be be tony soprano yes. so i had to look i had to look into it and see how much that played into him getting cast and not much comes up in fact a lot of it kind of seems to be the other way around the article that i read was like did tony scott invent tony soprano and they and the article was kind of like nah but you you can't help but notice it i mean it's there as somebody who just loves the sopranos just watching that is kind of like ooh, it's like you know deleted scenes or you know bonus tracks or something like that um but it's just again it's that that crossover that's happening in this movie it's it's a glimpse of what is to come from an actor who's just coming up and coming off of the theater scene and into movies with this role so um there's another one we'll talk about in a few minutes with brad pitt but i I thought that was fascinating to see kind of that pre-tony soprano james gandolfini in that role he was a real treat to watch in this actually he was awesome. So the next thing, we talked about this a bit, the Sicilian scene. Dennis Hopper, like I said, gives this monologue and this back and forth between him and Christopher Walken. But I just wanted to say one more thing that I am not a Dennis Hopper fan. And I know that I'm probably in the minority with that, but just Waterworld still sits way too heavy in my memories. And just, there's a lot of things. I think he's a major overactor, or was, unfortunately. But um, in this and in this movie, we already talked about ways that he just fooled Dennis Hoppered me and made me feel super gross. But uh, <laughs> but this scene is different. This and again, we see this movie pulling the best out of everybody in it, and Dennis Hopper's acting in this scene is incredible to say the least. But something that really hits me. He gives this speech, right, where he's just tearing apart uh, Christopher Walken's character, giving this history about where his people have come from. At the end of the speech, his face, I mean, this really hit me when I was watching it. He's hes fully into it. He's kind of laughing. Christopher Walken's laughing as he just insults this man right to his face. As soon as he's done... And, and there's this confidence going into the monologue. He asks for the cigarette, and he's smoking it so cool as he starts to just tear into him. As soon as the story is over, his face just drops. As now he realizes, my time is now over. I've said all I have to say. They're not going to let me say anything else, and now I die. And he knows it, and it's this... This look of resignation, but also fear and sadness and and like he just got reunited with his kid and and it's so much goes into this face. And I was like, good God, are you actually a good actor? 
Like it was otherworldly. Uh, it just, it, he knew he wasn't getting out of that. He was going to die. We knew that they were not letting, they weren't going to roll up there as deep as they did and, and walk out of there um, with this guy. I mean, he lied to them off the bat. He knows Christopher Walken knows he's been lied to this. He's not leaving. He's not right. leaving this trailer and he knows he can't fight them. He's not going to fight these four or five guys. So he gives it his best shot with his tongue. And you're right. The moment he is done, he is done. And he's got nothing else to say. He is spent. He has left it all right there. And there's nothing more he can do. But he got in one last parting jab the best way that he could. And that and was the it. the only way that he could. Yep. You're absolutely Only way right. that he could. Yep. Yep. Um, okay. Last thing. Brad Pitt as Floyd, Michael Rappaport's pothead of a roommate. First of all, is Brad Pitt even acting in this movie? Like, I feel no. like this is Brad Pitt. Like, Brad Pitt showed up as Brad Pitt and was like, film me, bro. <laughs> and it was magic to watch. He is a Brilliant. scene stealer. And he's giving all the mobsters all the information. He lives through all of it because he's just so dumb and innocent. You know, he's And so stoned. So blazed. So James Gandolfini comes to the apartment looking for Clarence and comes across Floyd. He's like, are they here? Do you know where they are? Oh, yeah, man. They live, they're at this hotel. How do you know? He's like, because they said they were leaving and going to this hotel. <laughs> and then and there's a scene where all the mobsters come back, which, again, you're missing Christopher Walken. It makes no sense. But all the mobsters come back still looking for him, and now they're at a different hotel, and he's, he's made a bong out of a honey bear. It's so great. <laughs> and when he's like, yeah, man, you guys want to hit this bong? And he's just holding this, this honey bear, plastic honey bear bottle. It's so good. And he's desperately trying to give them uh, directions. They're like, well, how do we get to the ambassador? And he's like, uh, you just... Like, yeah, down, just drive down a ways until you make a, a left. And, like, you can tell that somewhere in his brain there is an urgency because he somewhere deep down understands that these, these guys aren't messing around. Right. And he is just tripping all over his stone self to try and get them out, but he can't. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and the, ne the, the last point about this kind of interesting juxtaposition in this movie is... Judd Apatow cites this as the whole inspiration for Pineapple Express. Really? This character, he said, I wanted to write a movie about this character getting out in the world and being chased by bad guys. I That I did not know. That yeah. is fascinating. Totally. So Pineapple, Pineapple Express is kind of exploring this character of Floyd more fully, apparently. So... So Brad Pitt was actually supposed to be cast as one of the lead characters. Now, I don't know if that's necessarily Clarence or maybe it's Elliot or one of these other kind of bigger roles, right? With yeah. a little bit more screen time. They just couldn't, he was filming something else. They couldn't make the timing work and they couldn't make the schedules work. So, but he wanted so desperately to be in this movie that he agreed to fly himself out for one day to just shoot the Floyd scenes. And, and that's what he did. And it's funny. I mean, obviously, they make it up to him later. Tarantino puts him in everything and won him an Oscar. Anyways, but he wanted so bad to be in this that, that he, he went and did that. And he ends up being one of the absolute favorites of the movie. 
And totally. uh, anyways, so okay, let's let's bring this to a close. I have a final question. So we kind of did this last week. Um, a final question to post to you and to the listeners, and that's this. So Tarantino, as well as we've talked about, or as much as I've talked about, um, how I think this is the perfect marriage between everyone in their place. Tarantino originally wrote this to end much more like Romeo and Juliet, and uh, Clarence dies in the end. So when he gets shot in the face, he dies. Tony Scott changed this. And this was a huge problem for Tarantino. He was furious about it. And he started, and exactly like what he preaches in this movie, what his characters preach, he's like, you made this all Hollywood, man. And you did this and you did that. And he was pissed about it. Now, Tony Scott supposedly shot the ending both ways. He shot it with Clarence dying and he shot it with him living. And he showed them to Tarantino and said, you pick the one you want. And supposedly Tarantino, after watching it, finally conceded and was like, yours is better. Like, let's use your end. And I think this is interesting, too, simply because when he gets shot and he falls, and I think I remembered after the first time watching it that he lives, um, you see when they do the close-up, his eye is all blacked out and red. So you immediately think he got shot in the eye. But yeah. then his he has this cut above his eye and it almost looks like the bullet, like, yes, like it grazed his eyebrow and she, Alabama even has a line when he's trying to open his eyes and she's like, Oh baby, you've got blood in your eyes. Right. So it's like, that's why you can't see everything. Like maybe he turned just in time and the bullet grazed and, and whatever. But then we see him at the end of the movie and he's got an eye patch on. Right. And so you're like, wait a minute. Did he legit get shot in the face and lived? And then she has like, oh, if the bullet had been two inches to the left or whatever the the line is. So that part kind of bothered me because I'm like, uh, I don't know if I'm buying you take a bullet in the eyeball and you're cool. But again, all that being said, my question to you is, what do you think plays out as the better ending? Is it better the way Tarantino originally writes it where Clarence dies or the way that they did it, where everybody lives and it's kind of happily ever after in a way, do you think is the better movie? So I would pose that to the listeners. And Tim, I want to get your thoughts on it. It's interesting because on first blush, I was really kind of bummed that he, I, I assumed he was dead because they dragged it out just enough before he shows some signs of life that I was like, he's dead. And really nobody should have walked out of that situation. The fact that, that, um, that uh, Michael Rappaport walks out and uh, Patricia <laughs> Arquette is out. fine. It sprints out. Uh, everybody else is dead. By the end of that scene, everyone is dead. There's nobody alive. And it just, it made sense that he wasn't going to make it. Right. But that's not how you want this story to end. You, you were kind of, you're rooting for these wackos like after you accept their initial let's just roll with this you you want to see them succeed and you want to see them go through with it so i think i like it the way it is reading into this afterwards tarantino really says that autobiographically he had he refers to it as it was real punk rock to kill that character because it was him and so he feels like autobiographically that was the right thing to do but in this story that Tony Scott is telling about these lovers, 
it, it is not the right ending for the movie in the way that this was made. What I find even more incredibly interesting is that the original screenplay was written much more in the vein of Reservoir Dogs and Pulp Fiction, where it was uh, nonlinear. And yes. I, I had that thought halfway through. I was like, I wonder what this movie would look like nonlinear. And then, sure enough, it was written nonlinear. And I wonder what that would have looked like. Um, I don't know that it would have been the best for this movie. I, I, I don't know. I, I feel like maybe that would have, I feel like we would have known that they either both lived or, or, or that Clarence is dead prior to anything actually have happened. I feel like maybe Alabama's voiceover would have been, you know, more of a, uh, you know, we know how this ends and we're going to tell you how we get there sort of thing through, throughout the nonlinear narrative. But I think you, you want to see them alive in the end. You feel good about, you know, these two characters just go on with their lives now. They they got their money and they're going to go live off of their 200 grand and have their little Elvis baby and be good with it. I agree. And I do think, again, this movie was better served with Tony Scott at the helm, making this a linear movie, a more traditional storytelling experience. And and I do agree with you. At, in the end, I think them living does make the most sense, although they should have cleaned up sort of that scene a little bit. There is a part of me that kind of wants the Tarantino ending, but I think this is coming a year after Reservoir Dogs where we just watched everybody eat it in the bathroom. You know what I'm saying? So it's yeah. like I don't I don't need that every single time, which I feel is how this would have felt. Um, yep. And exactly like you said, by the time we get to the end, we want to see these people be okay. And, and it just feels good and it feels right. And yes, that's kind of sellouty or whatever you want to call it, but it's what we want, man. Like that's what we're coming here to see. And you just, you know, to take that all away and, and make it too Romeo and Juliet would have, mm. I think, sit a little bit too heavy. And it, it, this would have been a completely different movie, obviously, and a totally different experience. Okay, so let's end this. Tim, number one, do you recommend it? Number two... What's your rating? Uh, yeah, absolutely. I think if you go into it after listening to this, sorry about the spoilers if you're going to do that. <laughs> but I apologize for nothing, you monsters. <laughs> um, I think once you accept that the camp and that this is a 90s movie, um, you know, we've talked off air a little bit about um, the original bad boys. There's just a hue and a colorization to these nineties action movies. That's that also that gratuitous over the top violence. That's almost comical violence in a way. It's not very realistic. Right. Um, once, once you, once you accept that that is part of what makes this movie, it, it's one of those things that, like you said, it's, it's one of those things like you feel like that's a reason you shouldn't like it, but you just do it's it's great it, it, it's really fun and um it is a fun exercise in being one of the i think the only example of a, a tarantino movie not directed by tarantino and just to see that is fascinating um yeah. you know it, it's it's just and then couple it with everything i've said about the actors and the cast um you know the 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 veritable uh, who's who of popular then popular now uh, it is just an all-star uh, making uh, in the making for a movie at, at that time. It's just the past and the present. Um, it, it's uh, yes, uh, I absolutely watch it. Um, I'll watch it again for sure. I'll go seven out of 10. Yeah. Very nice. Yeah. I, I agree completely. This movie is fantastic. 
and it's fantastic in all the ways you'd want it to be. It baffles the mind. It's a true pleasure to watch from start to finish. There's something in it for everybody. If you like the cheesy, campy love story, you're going to like it. If you don't like that, you're going to like that they're kind of making fun of it. It's got the blood, and it's got the mobsters. It's got narc cops. It's got drugs. It's got Hollywood and odes to Hollywood. It's got bashing Hollywood. It's got comics. It's got a sex scene. It's got it all, right? And so, but more than anything, it has incredible writing. It has brilliant acting. It has beautiful cinematography. It has incredible direction. And we talked about this man, Tony Scott, just getting every drop out of every person. It has every cameo you can imagine. And it seems like everyone genuinely wants to be there because they're just bringing a game. Um, yes, it's camp. Yes, it's 90s. Some of the cuts and the edits are a little bit jaggedy and weird. Like all of a sudden you end up at a, at a phone booth and then you're back in a car and whatever. But you forgive all of that because it just kind of makes sense. And like I said, you don't you don't know always why you forgive it, but you do. And it's got the ending that you like and everybody's happy and everything's great in the end. And it's it's great. It's it's freaking great. Um, it's free right now on Prime Video, so 100% it's worth watching for free. You can also buy it for $12.99. I'm going to be real honest with you. This is a huge recommendation from me for purchase. If you like Tarantino movies, I would recommend it. If you love 90s movies, you should buy it. You're going to revisit it. You know, you're going to tell people about it. Um, it's it's a great movie. I highly recommend it. I give it an 8 out of 10. And I think, arguably, it's among one of his best written movies. Absolutely. Yep. No question. I, I, I mean, I simply want to watch it again just for those characters that did not get enough screen time. Yeah. I, I mean, that that's the bottom line. Here, I'm telling you, Gary Oldman, it, he's an absolute game changer for me. Absolutely. Uh, it, watch that scene, if nothing else, and then decide if you want to watch the rest of the movie. Uh, it's just, it's totally worth it. So true. <laughs> it's totally worth it. All right, Tim, did we forget anything? If we did, we've truly forgotten it. Yeah, that is true. <laughs> Guys, thank you so much for listening. As always, hit us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. We are at Paused Reviews with an S at the end. It is plural. Send us messages, recommendations, questions, whatever. We want to talk about it. We want to get into this dialogue with you guys. It's why we do what we do. What else, man? That's about it. Keep listening. Keep enjoying. Tell your friends. Tell your family. Uh, and we'll be back next week with another episode. Uh, we're going to be talking for Love of the Game with Kevin Costner. Yeah. A little date night movie with uh, scratching a little bit of the itch that you have for some baseball. Uh, 53 days without baseball. <laughs> we'll see you next week, guys. Thanks for listening. As always, I'm your boy, Frank. This is Tim. And uh, we'll catch you on the next one. See ya. Peace. Peace.